Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Welcome to White Collar Briefly, the podcast series of the Perkins Coie White Collar and Investigations Group. Today, we'll be talking with our guest, Mark Menora, about False Claims Act investigations and enforcement issues. Mark is general counsel of a consortium of five companies in the healthcare services and nursing industries. Those companies are Fast Staff, U.S. Nursing, True Staff, Cardio Solution, and Stella.ai. Mark was formerly Vice President and Litigation Counsel for Envision, and in D.C., where I got to know him at Kirkland & Ellis, after his time at Kirkland & Ellis, Mark was a DOJ trial attorney, and before he served at Kirkland & Ellis, he was at Paul Weiss in New York City. And I'm your host, Barack Cohen, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Canizares, and we both work in the Washington, D.C. office of Perkins Coie. Mark, can we kick things off by having you tell us a bit about your professional background and what led you uh, in-house to work in the healthcare industry? Of course. Thanks, Barack, and thanks for the uh, generous introduction. You're right. uh, We first met back in D.C. at uh, Kirkland and Ellis, and uh, what brought me there was, um, you know, continued interest in commercial litigation at the time, as well as, um, you know, interest in government service at some point in the future, which then as you stated, I accomplished uh, at DOJ, uh, first in the National Security Division, where I also assisted in some prosecutions. And uh, eventually that led me to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Denver, Colorado, where I settled for some time in the Civil Division at that U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, from there, I went the in-house route, first with Vail Resorts, the ski uh, company based in Colorado which was a lot of fun. I had to ski for work. From that, I uh, moved into healthcare, which I had uh, touched upon uh, in my DOJ days in the form of doing medical malpractice defense for federal cases. Military bases, uh, VA hospitals and the like uh, gave rise to uh, a medical malpractice docket that I was happy to assist on. But in Denver, I moved to Envision Healthcare for several years, primarily in the litigation uh, areas, dealing with both uh, professional liability, any other type of litigation that could arise, and also government investigations. Uh, From Envision, I more recently, just earlier this year, moved into general counsel position at the the group of companies you just named, soon to have a parent company name, but that's not quite public yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to a much faster way to describe who you work for, much, much more streamlined. Um, you know, a question I always have for people in, in the healthcare industry, regardless of how they engage with it from a legal perspective, is is how they find it different from other kinds of work they've done. I think that's really, I think you're in a great position to talk about it since you've done so many things. What is it about working in the industry that you find challenging versus other things you've done? Well, in so much of litigation and legal work generally, it's really just about the money. But in healthcare, 
at the core. It's about people. It's about patients and patient care. And you can never lose sight of that. Many of the players in the sector are, are very driven and have you know, missions and values that relate directly to patient care. And, and for that to be the, the primary focus of any endeavor, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit healthcare. And that is an overarching concern and guiding principle to do no harm and take care of your patients, regardless of the money factor. And that's, that's different than most other industries to which legal services can be provided. So I'm glad you, you focused on that, and I find it an interesting counterpoint to what we're here to talk about today, the False Claims Act. So a number of times, obviously, just by the nature of my practice, I've had to talk about the False Claims Act to clients a number of times when, a number of times when they're unfamiliar with it. And I always, I always note that it's, it's a very well-intentioned law, but it, it, its protection of whistleblowers can be, you know, frankly problematic. We obviously care about what it what the False Claims Act stands for, but it really empowers opportunistic whistleblowers to to take advantage of companies. And and Alex, you want to maybe that's a, a good segue for you to talk a bit about um, the False Claims Act. Sure, uh, Barack. Thanks. So, I mean, as you noted, the False Claims Act is the government's primary remedy to combat fraud against the government, and the healthcare and life sciences industries have been in recent years, the primary areas of enforcement activity. And if you look every year when DOJ announces its total recoveries under the False Claims Act, um, healthcare, life sciences industries are the predominant um, share of the overall recoveries. And recently, DOJ has made clear that healthcare is a top priority in enforcement enforcement under the False Claims Act. Michael Granson, who is the Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Commercial Litigation Branch, in DOJ's civil division uh, said in public remarks just in June of this year that of over 900 new False Claims Act matters that were opened in 2020 by DOJ, 580 were, were healthcare fraud matters. And uh, DOJ settled 366 False Claims Act cases in 2020, he said, of those 265 involved healthcare. And those were record highs for the department. You know, going forward, what are DOJ's enforcement priorities, at least in the healthcare context, based on, you know, public comments from Mr. Granston and others, a number of areas to keep an eye out are, are include electronic healthcare records. It's been a, an area where there's been some settlements, opioids and fraud related to opioids uh, generally, and at different parts of the distribution chain for opioids. Senior citizens continue and, and abuse of senior citizens is a concern that the department has voiced, and, and you're seeing that come out in particular cases. Medicare managed care program, and lastly, COVID 19, and, and the real increase in spending that came out of the COVID 19 crisis resulted, as everybody knows, in a lot of government spending to new areas, new companies that hadn't received government money before. And anytime you have representations or certifications that companies are making in exchange for receiving government money, that can potentially implicate the False Claims Act. So those are some of the areas that we're seeing as, as areas that both DOJ and QUITAM whistleblowers are, are interested in. You know, and it's it's that QUITAM whistleblower piece that particularly interests me. Um, so Mark, what what have you learned to do from, from your in-house perspective to manage whistleblower risks? Well, that's a great question. And there, there are answers to that that perhaps are the most important answers that are not directly related to the legal or compliance aspects of managing, and I'll, I'll use your term, a whistleblower risk. 
Uh, whistleblowers are people. Uh, they're people that work for your company, uh, that you trust with company information, uh, company know-how, company processes and procedures, and you trust them to do their jobs and to report up the chain any issues they're having with their jobs, whether it is a inconsequential matter uh, or, you know, one that goes to the heart of how you do business. And when that expectation fails and, and that employee doesn't go up the chain or goes up the chain but isn't heard or received well, you really invite the whistleblower risk that can have you know, untold consequences on, um, on, on the resources of your company and even, a, even its viability to continue to do business. So I actually think that a lot of the management of whistleblower risk has to do with your employee population and their job satisfaction and happiness in general in ways that have nothing to do with compliance or the False Claims Act. Uh, when you have a positive work environment, you engender and foster uh, communication and people who will come forward when they need to come forward without fear of reprisal or retaliation or repercussions. And you will, you will diminish the number of unhappy people that come to work for your company every day because it's usually not the happy ones that become whistleblowers. So if you have a happy workforce, uh, or at least a satisfied workforce, you're, you're not giving that person that extra reason to come forward with something that, you know, may and often is not actually something that you consider a violation of any regulation or a questionable, questionable practice even, but is merely something that the employee who's unhappy for other reasons can latch onto and use as a vehicle to further themselves or to, you know, um, damage the company in some way uh, because they felt, feel that they have not been heard or have not been appreciated. In my experience, many of the key TAM actions have come from employees who were not, you know, the compliance officer or someone in a position to know or really understand uh, the issue that they end up bringing forward. Regardless, the the impact and the the results of an investigation, you know, are so breathtaking and broad that, uh, you know, an ounce of prevention for that employee uh, would have been well worth the, the cost of the cure. I think that's a really useful observation. When when I have seen False Claims Act matters arise from internal whistleblower complaints, it's because it's typically because of an employee with with some other axe to grind. So the the one that really the one the four, one one that I'm really thinking of is a employee at a company who was really mad that he'd been passed over for a promotion a couple of times. And latched on to a couple of things that were happening at the company, and obviously that turned into a that turned into a a long running false claims act investigation that took years and years to resolve, and frankly, might have resolved differently if 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 they if the employee had been managed in a different way. So I get what you're saying. The other interesting dimension, though, of that is that when you do have, if things don't work out and they don't always work out, and you've got a whistleblower complaint, a key tam, arising from a disgruntled or whatever, a disgruntled employee or otherwise other employee within the company, it, it gets, in my experience, it gets really, really difficult 
to start making decisions about how to manage your investigation and the government's investigation versus managing the employee because you can't just fire you, you there's no way you can fire the the whistleblower right because of the protections in place and you have to manage the whistleblower's other complaints and i i just wonder if you can share any insights into how you've managed to balance that if you when you've seen it arise well i wish i had a secret formula i could share for how to address that in any situation but it's, it's really a, a nuanced and careful dance that you have to take steps with uh, every day. You know, once, once a whistleblower is uh, revealed or even when just suspected, you really have to work closely with your HR and compliance departments to make sure there are no retaliatory actions or actions that can be perceived to be retaliatory against that person. You have to be careful to you know, include that person in um, the meetings and decisions and everything else that they would otherwise be, even if you did not have the, the suspicion or the confirmation that they are a whistleblower. You need to sort of not, not talk about the elephant in the room and um, make every day just another work day. Yeah. And the, I mean, the considerations are really fascinating. So, you can be wrong about who you suspect the whistleblower to be. I've seen that happen. It's very embarrassing. Companies internally obviously want to, pe- people need to share information internally, but you have to start thinking about how broadly you can speak about certain things, in particular with the course of the investigation, given that you may not be sure who the internal whistleblower is and you don't want to, you need to be careful not not to start sharing information about what you're looking at or your strategy in in dealing with a government investigation when that may be shared with a whistleblower who may be sharing it with his or her attorney who may take advantage of that improperly. I've seen issues in trying to recover internal information for productions to the government, you know, reviewing employee email so that we had to be careful not to, not to look at the whistleblower's communications with their attorney, which of course are arguably privileged depending on the expectation of privacy on whatever communications platform they're using. But the, the issues got really, really, contra- really, really complicated very, very quickly, I found. And Alex, I think you'd mentioned to us earlier before this call about some new case law from from the Sixth Circuit, I think, that, that impacts all of this. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So the False Claims Act has a freestanding cause of action for retaliation. So it's not uncommon to you know see a whistleblower alleging a violation of the False Claims Act and then coupling that in, in, in his or her complaint with an allegation, a so-called H-clause claim that they are being retaliated against for divulging or you know disclosing this whistleblower uh, activity, engaging in whistleblower activity. And this decision out of the Sixth Circuit has recently held that that cause of action can apply to conduct that the company engages in after the employee leaves the company. So, and there was a dissenting opinion that took a pretty different view. And this is really creates a circuit split. You've had most other circuits that have looked at this have consistently held that, you know, the employee who's covered by this is an employee and employee of the company means someone who's presently, you know, employed by the company. So this does create, I think, an avenue for whistleblowers to make arguments based on conduct that occurs after they leave the company and potentially even after they're you know engaged in litigation or or pursuing their claims under the false claims act 
which creates a very difficult situation uh, conceivably for companies that are trying to both, as you noted, Brock, you know, on the one hand, defend themselves in an investigation, but on the other hand, ensure that they're complying with the anti-retaliation types of obligations that they have. And when, so in the times when this became particularly fraught, when I've been involved in matters, it, I, there was just a lot of very, very close consultation between in-house in-house counsel and principal decision makers and me as outside counsel. Um, I remember questions like we were thinking of conducting an internal audit just for the course, just part of the course of business. What should we do? You know, and a bit of handholding as we, as we walked through whether that was a good idea at the time or not, but very, very complicated decision-making. So in terms of managing these investigations, Generally, Mark, uh, let me throw a hypo out there. What if you suspect there is a key TAM case, but you're not sure? What do you do? Well, one thing you should be doing the whole time, and I wanted to mention this, uh, is you should be running a clean operation or as clean as you possibly can. You know, I think it's easy for us on the defense counsel side to always uh, assume that we as a company or we as a client are, uh, are acting appropriately not cutting corners. And hopefully that's the case with most of your clients and with the companies I've worked for, I'm sure it is. But the, um, you know, the risk of having an ongoing investigation, and if you suspect it, if you're concerned about it, uh, I mean, this is certainly the time to improve on any practices that you're, that you're currently involved in. And that can be as simple as, you know, making sure you're keeping a record of what you believe you're doing right, so that you have information to supply uh, from a cooperation stance down the road and frankly just have self-serving information that's going to show that you've been trying to do the right thing and keeping a record of such. Yeah, actually, um, it's funny you're touching on cooperation. This anticipates the next thing I was going to bring up. I'm actually interested in talking more about about compliance, which I think you're kind of getting at, proactive compliance and staying ahead of problems. But just for a second, in terms of cooperation and government investigations, you know, the the reality is that False Claims Act investigations by the department are, um, I'll be a little flippant and blunt, they're they're shakedowns. They they end up in settlements almost always. Um, And it's and there are certainly reasons for that from a company's perspective. It's just cheaper to settle a false claims investigation than than undergo litigation and, and bad publicity, even when even when DOJ's claims aren't very strong. And I've certainly I've seen that repeatedly. Sometimes the claims look, sometimes the government's on the money, but often enough they're just they're bad claims. But we'll settle it out because it's smarter. Uh, what's what's your internal way of evaluating the, the settlement dynamic. I mean, under what under what circumstances would you consider fighting? Well, under perfect circumstances, let me put it that way. <laughs> um, it is extremely hard to, uh, you know, if you're in a viable company that can afford it and you don't have to bet the company to, to go to trial, it is, you know, nine times out of 10, if not more, the more pragmatic business decision to settle. So short of a case of mistaken identity, and, and, and I don't mean that in a completely joking manner, <laughs> it is it is very difficult to have anything other than settlement as the end game because the consequences are so uh, are so incredibly steep uh, if it goes the wrong way. Well, well, then what are you really looking for from outside counsel? Someone to manage the, I guess, I'm just throwing this out there, but I mean, one 
someone who someone who can manage the investigation with an endpoint in mind that leads to a a minimal a, a settlement with minimal exposure for the company, right? I mean, I guess, I guess that's it. That's it in part, but there's a lot of handholding in the process. Depending on your client, you may have a more or less sophisticated client when it comes to government investigations. You may have a more or less sophisticated client when it comes to the notion of settling anything when the client doesn't believe it's done anything wrong. So it is very difficult as outside counsel to come in with the presumption that your client will want to settle this one day. So you shouldn't lead with that as outside counsel. Um, you, sh- you should come in and hear the client out, uh, respect their position and beliefs about their practices that have gotten them into this investigation and, you know, have an open mind as to whether, you know, whether to fight or settle as time goes on. You, you know, I can't think of a scenario where I would, as, as inside or outside counsel, decide on day one, we're going to fight this to the end versus we're going to settle. So there's always a chance it may be worth fighting. And that fighting, I mean, hopefully would end with the government closing its investigation and the, and the relator dropping their case rather than having to win a trial. So, you know, you can win um, short of going to trial, and that would that would be the best case scenario. But it is very hard to decide on day one where and how it's going to end. And frankly, you started this uh this line by asking, what do you really need from outside counsel? And part of what I really need from outside counsel is for outside counsel to have the right kind of relationship with uh, the DOJ counsel or, or the government investigator, whoever it is. In my experience, I've seen a lot better results by my defense counsel having a very positive and collaborative relationship with the DOJ counsel. I'm sure it can work the other way, when uh, you know, defense counsel can beat their chest and you know take a righteous position over their clients' actions and have that um, you know scare off DOJ counsel, but I think that's the exception. Yeah, and I'll, so both I'm interested in Alex's views here, but as someone who used to be a, a federal prosecutor at DOJ, when when I got defense counsel who puffed a lot and would would beat their proverbial chest. More often than not, it was the case became more compelling to me because I'd be irritated. I mean, you try to. I felt challenged, and you know, prosecutors are people too, so you have to you have to figure out a way to to get the results you want while working with them, and maybe pushing back selectively or knowing when to be aggressive. I think, but by and large, you got to figure out who you're dealing with. Um, I, I don't know if you ever saw that dynamic, Alex. When you were on the other no, side. absolutely. I've seen that dynamic, and certainly in my experience, you know, both when I was a DOJ and now is you know, you know, being aggressive for the sake of being aggressive is never a good strategy, and usually can you know backfire. I think that by and large, uh, you know, being selectively aggressive can be a good strategy, but you have to choose your battles, and if you don't choose your battles, you lose credibility, and if you lose credibility, you lose. That's generally my philosophy, uh, and I think it plays out in government investigations and litigation alike. I, I will say very recently I had an interaction with a um, prosecutor. I can't go into too much detail, obviously, but I don't want to out the, the client or, the, or the, the people involved. But 
the upshot is the prosecutor got very, very irate at a position we took. And I, I literally spent 15, 20 minutes getting yelled at. And I, I am glad to say I stayed very calm, uh, logically laid out our position without giving any ground. And the next time we picked up the communication, the I found I got a lot better treatment and a much better audience from DOJ because he felt embarrassed that he had lost his temper and not pursued his case in a logical, sort of unemotional way that indicated he felt in control. So it, in the long run, it's useful to be, I think, strategically assertive, but but very rarely in a way that shows anger. Mark, I'm curious to get hear from you about, I mean, we've talked about the relationship with whistleblowers and with DOJ, but I'm curious if you could offer a couple observations on how to deal with the stakeholders within the company. You know, your your management in the company, the various people who would be potentially witnesses, and, um, you know, how do you go about doing that in an effective way and communicating with people who need to know, you know, what's going on? That's an important question, Alex. The, the management of your internal clients from an in-house counsel seat can be challenging, especially when there may be a lot of anger that the investigation is taking place, that the whistleblower, if there's a whistleblower, you know, turned against the company or you know, stepped out of their lane to complain about something that the company views is outside their area. Uh, the company may want to fire that person. The company may want to you know, defend itself to the end and, you know, make those proclamations early on and, and try to take a very aggressive defensive posture that, uh, that uh, you know, as in-house counsel, you need to let, uh, you know, in- internal clients are people too, just like prosecutors. And you need to let them uh, vent and blow their steam and to be that sounding board for them. You know, one of the roles um, or one of the one of the aspects of in-house counsel work that I like so much is that you're sort of the liaison and the translator between the business and between outside counsel. So, you know, I want my internal stakeholders to let me have it and vent on me before they do so to outside counsel. For one thing, it costs more to to vent to outside counsel, depending on how long it goes. And, and so, you know, and so I can massage it and, and, and absorb it and then, you know, package it for outside counsel to say, hey, um, you know, Barack, Alex, in this next meeting we have uh, with the client, you know, here's some sensitive issues you should be aware of. Or, you know, here's how they felt about when I proposed that idea you had. Uh, just so you know what you're getting into. So there's, there's a lot of sensitivity, but there is also there's a lot of care that needs to be taken in managing the business around the issue being investigated uh, around the whistleblower um, if you are going if you think you have warts and you need to talk about them it's better to just talk about them and not email about them um, attorney client privilege only goes so far and is only so defensible i would rather that i as general counsel be the note taker and the record keeper of anything that needs to be memorialized um, for future's sake, rather than emails flying around that may or may not include me or you as outside counsel, but that we'd have to, you know, put on a privilege log and fight about being um, being privileged. To the extent we can keep discussions verbal and not write anything down, that's preferable. And that's some of the coaching that would have to occur internally when an investigation is taking place. 
Sounds like a very high EQ, sensible way to approach things. So when when do you vent at outside counsel? What 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 does outside counsel fail to do sometimes that? Sure. I mean, frankly, a lot of it is just about cost. You know, if a document review uh, has to go back to 2005, and you know, not only do we pay this much to the lawyers, but there's this much to the vendor, and this much to the doc review attorneys. And it's not an expense that the business is used to seeing, you know, that alone <laughs> can create some, uh, some uncomfortable conversations. So some of it is just, uh, you know, managing any external spend on, on counsel on any legal issue. But then there's also, you know, again, when the business wants to go more aggressive and the counsel advises against it, it may be the best advice in the world, but you've got to take your lumps and hear the business complain about it too. Yeah, and you, you know, just there's a constant theme that's coming up in your discussion: managing managing client expectations with the help of in-house counsel. And I've definitely, I've definitely seen that. I remember a conversation one. Just to illustrate your point, I remember in-house counsel, pretty sophisticated client, and he was just livid because he really, really wanted to fight the government. Um, this is about him wanting to fight the government. And I remember telling him, that would be great. I love litigating. I don't get to do it often enough. Um, but I will tell you honestly, in the end, you're going to pay me a lot of money. I'm certainly going to appreciate it from a professional point of view and it'll be lucrative. I'm not sure what the, I'm not, I'm not sure if the outcome will be, will be better than the very frustrating settlement process we're going through. And he immediately cooled down and, you know, I, I sensed some appreciation that I had allowed him that I had allowed him to vent, and then then a realization that I was basically right. But managing that really takes a lot of attention. What do you see as the as the value or the hindrance of having in house counsel? Because some of your clients probably don't have in house counsel. So when you have an in house counsel who may be more of a generalist, does that help or hurt what you need to do with a client in terms of making tough decisions and putting on the best defense that you can? It. Always, always helps. I think in-house counsel. Yeah, <laughs> in I, I've dealt with both kinds of companies. In-house having in-house counsel means there is somebody who speaks your language, and you can walk them. And because we're lawyers, we look regardless, regardless of whether you're a lawyer who has a who's short-tempered or, or one who is who tends to think through issues very analytically. All lawyers tend to be more analytical, and you can always talk a lawyer through the business issues and do a cold assessment as to the legal claims and then explain why what you're doing makes sense. And then with their help, message it to the business people. So I, for exactly the reasons you've described, in-house counsel are great. It just, it's a lot more, I, I find that I've developed more sensitivity to clients in situations where there's no in-house counsel, because then I have to be able to translate things for business people and I have to be a lot more patient. But having in-house counsel really, really saves a lot of, a, a lot of energy. What do you think, Alex? I, you know, I totally agree. And I would add too, just from the perspective of, you know, co being cost efficient, you know, if there are, there are certain roles that the in-house counsel can play that Mark has already touched on that if that person is not in that role might have to fall to outside counsel and that's difficult and more costly to manage. And then you get into the attorney client privilege and protecting privilege, right. And in terms of conducting, for example, an internal investigation and making sure that you're adequately protecting privilege at all times. 
that's harder to do if you don't have an in-house lawyer who can wear that lawyer hat, you know, recognizing that, you know, and Mark, I'd be curious to hear your experience with navigating that because sometimes you're, you're wearing a business hat and sometimes you're wearing a, a lawyer hat, but you need to have the lawyer hat if you want to protect privilege. And that's key to any of this. That's right. And often a lot of outside counsel will advise that they should have more than typical inclusion in those discussions for attorney-client privilege and work product considerations. And you're right to point out that in-house lawyers sometimes wear a business hat. I've been lucky in my um, in my litigation roles where I was designated as, as head of litigation that that title helped me wear the pure lawyer hat and, and not cross lines into the business side. Uh, now as general counsel, I have to be more aware of the distinction, but at the same time, I think my litigation training put me in a good position to be able to, to keep those lines separate and, um, you know, be able to conduct myself in a manner that will really bolster attorney client privilege when I'm, uh, in the legal role. But the advice is kind of what it always is on, on attorney client privilege, uh, you know, to the, to the lay client is that, uh, you know, just because you copy me on it doesn't mean it's privileged. The email about the football poll uh, or March Madness is not privileged. Um, so if you want it to be privileged, let's talk legal. So, you know, an interesting thing I find about healthcare work is just how highly regulated the field is and how difficult it is to stay on top of the minutiae. So you noticed. Uh, so I noticed, right. What do you do to stay on top of that? How do you how do you navigate those, those difficult waters? Well, I listen to uh, Perkins Coie podcasts. <laughs> Um, among others, but, um, no, I mean, there is a ton of information coming all the time. And frankly, I do try to take advantage of, uh, free law firm education, um, because from your seats, you are living it, uh, on behalf of multiple clients all the time where I only have one client. So I only, I only, if I just rely on my uh, business exposure, I only see what comes in through the front door. So reliance on all the educational opportunities from outside counsel is key. You know, obviously I look for CLEs in these, in these areas as well. And, um, you know, I keep uh, an active network of people like yourselves to, to talk about healthcare regulatory minutia, as exciting as that may sound. Oh yeah. So here's something, let me kick this out there. This is an issue that we talked about before the podcast, and it's also a topic of conversation generally at firms, the the value or lack of value in having DOJ experience when you're outside counsel, or I guess in-house counsel too. Mark, what are your, what are your views, pro or con? Well, I have heard clients say, if I'm going to be defending a DOJ investigation, I want my defense counsel to have DOJ experience. And I have also worked with defense counsel who have never worked for the DOJ and have done outstanding work. So I think it is one of those, it may be a barrier barrier of entry to some defense counsel who don't have that experience. They may, they may be missing out on getting the first call from a client once in a while, especially an inexperienced client who feels that, well, I want you to have that experience uh, and I won't call anyone else because how can you know what to do if you haven't done it yourself? There's always some validity to that. But the fact is, 
once you've put your time in as defense counsel, you're going to learn what you need to know. And um, th there's no reason, you know, if you're if you're an educated consumer as a client and you go through, you know, referrals from colleagues and uh, referrals from other outside counsel to get you to the right counsel, it ultimately doesn't matter if you have that DOJ experience or not. I'm saying that as someone who does. It's nice that I can check that box, but plenty of great counsel don't have it and do and do a great job. What I would caution against is companies using their generalist outside counsel uh, to defend them in a key TAM or, or, or any, any other type of government investigation. And I have seen that happen, especially in a investigation with multiple targets. You know, real damage can be done to the defense. You know, if you have the attorney who does your corporate taxes, let's say, not because tax attorneys don't know what they're doing. They certainly do in their area. But this is its own specialized area, and specialized counsel should be hired to do the work. So since it was my question, I do feel I feel obligated to point out the potential con of DOJ experience. I generally I, I agree with with what you just said, Mark. I think it's very it's very valuable, especially in terms of understanding where prosecutors may be coming from when they otherwise appear to be irrational. You can understand some of the other pressures they're facing that you can then work with or use to get where you want to be. Um, to the extent that there are any negatives, I think sometimes, especially when they're when they're new from DOJ, they may over-sympathize with prosecutors in a way that can be unhelpful to companies. Having, and Alex, I'd, I'd be really interested since I know you're, you're somewhat younger vintage than I, at least in terms of our DOJ service. After having been out for a while, I am more skeptical about motives when I'm dealing with prosecutors. More skeptical than I was at least the first year or two when I was in private practice. And that's because, you know, I I dealt with I dealt with a broader variety of prosecutors around the country and I started to realize that they can they can vary in quality and, and in trustworthiness. So I'm curious what you've seen. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say bringing a healthy dose of skepticism to, you know, I mean, that's that's good. That's that's a good approach to take generally, but definitely, you know, in my experience, having come out of the government, I think understanding how your adversary thinks and anticipating their next move is is on the whole very valuable. But you have to be, you do have to be careful not to, you know, you have to you have to be mindful of positions that they may be taking that may not have a good foundation, may not be supported, and, and you have to be testing everything. And that's it, I, I just find it's it's easier to do having sat in that chair to generally take that kind of position. But but yeah, I mean I think as Mark you pointed out, people have different, you know, perception and reality are different sometimes in this area. And sometimes people have, you know, preconceived notions about what a government attorney is or a former government attorney has in terms of experience. But but by and large, I, at least the people I've seen who come out and started in private practice, I think there's, you know, they tend to be bring a great deal of you know credibility usually to the, the you know, to their practice. And if they've just come into private practice from government, uh, there's probably a more senior counsel on that case as well <laughs> to to offset any prosecutorial bias the more junior person may have. But I think in the long run, that that experience will serve that person, serve that attorney very well. There's a flip side issue that is a, a frustration point to any uh, company being investigated by the DOJ, which we can't solve for on this podcast, but it's an observation I'll make anyway. And that is that very often the, the DOJ attorney investigating or prosecuting your case has had no outside experience from the DOJ. 
in, in that they have, have not engaged in private sector work or maybe just a couple of years at a firm and certainly don't have any experience running a company or operating in a significant position in a, in a, with a large employer. And it is extremely frustrating. You can't pick your prosecutor, of course. But when you're dealing with someone who just assumes you're a bad guy because you operate a for-profit business and that if you're investigated, uh, you must be bad. Because so often, as you both know, what's getting you investigated either is a misunderstanding or a mistake or a new interpretation of the regulation that pertains to, to the action at issue. And there is, you know, so many times no ill intent or, you know, mens rea to actually do anything wrong. But the laws are tricky and complicated, and sometimes you get it wrong. Um, that doesn't mean you're a bad guy. It doesn't mean you should be treated with contempt by the prosecutor. And if there were a, if there were a way to, uh, you know, to mandate that uh, anybody who investigates a company has, you know, worked for a company for five years first, uh, the world might be a better place. But we're not going to fix that now. Yep. I... I definitely sympathize. I've seen that. It's very difficult to explain explain to a government employee why why your 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 well-paid client is reluctant to give up a lot of money to settle something. It can be challenging. Or or, or how can it can be difficult to explain why your client may not have realized their issues with a complicated regulation and that doesn't necessarily um, implicate nefarious intent as opposed to, my God, I was trying to parse and un- unpack this regulation. And you can see the emails indicating my my efforts to ask questions about it. And my contrary interpretation of the regulation is not about my conspiring to, to violate the healthcare laws. Right. Or even the realization that any company has stakeholders um, beyond beyond the government and its regulations. You, you have obligations to your employees, your customers, um, your, your shareholders. All of those obligations come with their own set of legal requirements. And, you know, the, the path uh, to the righteous is not always clear. I, I would just interject too and say, you know, since we're talking about the False Claims Act here, that is what really makes the False Claims Act such a potent tool is it has, it's a civil statute, but it does have a knowledge requirement that is much more lenient or a, a lower standard than you would have in a criminal context. You know, the knowledge, the word knowledge is defined in the statute to include deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard. And that's why this is such a powerful uh, statute that is used in, in highly regulated industries where there often is a great deal of ambiguity. And, and there is case law that recognizes that a good faith, reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous statute or regulation is not sufficient to be knowledge under the False Claims Act. But this is where the rubber meets the road in a lot of these cases in, in terms of establishing knowledge. So, Mark, we've talked a lot about dealing with the government in these KETAM cases. What happens if the government decides not to intervene, not to join the, the whistleblower in the lawsuit, and you end up litigating against the whistleblower? but just the whistleblower. How, how does that affect things for you? Well, Barack, my understanding and my experience is that it used to be less common for cases to continue once the government declined intervention. But more and more, it seems that Relators Council are willing to continue uh, the pursuit of their cases without the help of the government. 
at least without the help of the government, uh, sitting in, in the, uh, you know, what we've been calling the prosecutor's chair. It is a disappointment, of course, to the company that the case continues without, uh, uh, without the government, um, you know, sort of blessing it or thinking it's something that's important enough to proceed with. And then, you know, you're left with, you know, often a very aggressive civil litigator who is trying to, you know, reap the rewards for their individual client, which can be, as you know, incredibly lucrative to a relator who recovers. And it is, um, so a second level of frustration because first you were frustrated to be investigated at all. And now you're frustrated that even though the government is, um, you know, not interested enough to proceed that you've still got the relator, you're probably your former employee to possibly, you know, continue the fight for years, um, for years ahead. And then when you reach settlement with the relator, there's still, you know, government settlement as well in most cases where the government has to approve that settlement. So look, I certainly prefer not litigate, not litigating against the government and not having the government driving the investigation, but it is a, um, an unfortunate reality today that you will often have to continue with relators counsel and defend just as vigorously, but at, at least have the saving grace that you're not, you know, in the government sites anymore. Right. Yeah. We'll say that litigating against the, the relator is far more straightforward than litigating against the government and far less generally, far less difficult. Mark and Alex, thank you for joining us, and I hope all our listeners enjoyed the recording. Thank you, Brock. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com, where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening. <laughs>